Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready right, for friends, some awesome. Welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the show Andy Crouch, but this time he is wisened up and he has brought his daughter with him. Welcome to the show, Amy and Andy Crouch. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you are joining us from uh, Southeast Ohio or uh, Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia area, right? Yeah, just outside of Philadelphia. We talked about this last time, and I forget which part of Philly it is. Yeah, Swarthmore is a is right in Delaware County, which is the very southeasternmost corner of the state. Yes, and, uh, we've lived here for eighteen years. This is where Amy really grew up, and she's back home from school, so it's very nice. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. And Amy, you're taking the semester off, and you're at Cornell. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I'm a junior. You're. Hold on. Let's do the math on that. You're 19 and a junior. Tell no, me more. No, no, I was 19 when I wrote this book. Okay. Um, but I have since turned 20. Oh, okay. <laughs> Keeps happening. That happens every year, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, it surprised okay. me too. Did you, 20 is a junior, that's young, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just on the younger side of my class for okay. whatever reason, because my birthday's in June. I mean, probably the birthday is the main reason while you're young. I mean, that's a, probably the biggest indicator of age. Uh, but I was like, that, that does seem... Makes sense, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I, um, I graduated college at 20, and so I started early. Uh, I had an August birthday, and then I skipped a year of high school. So I just, like, mm-hmm. you seem a bit precocious. The writing's really good in the book, too, so I feel like you got some things going on for you. Uh, now, here's, here's the, the thing that I'm very excited about. A couple uh, weeks, months, whenever the book came in the mail, I had thought to myself, I definitely need to talk to Mr. Techwise about 2020 because I had made the joke so many times about 2020. I was like, even Andy Crouch is probably staring at his phone all day right now. I was like, it is so bad. Like we've all given up like that iPhone thing. It says, do you want to see how much screen time you looked at this week? And you're like, no, no. Andy, like how, like, let's be honest. You've loosened up a little bit, haven't you, in 2020? So, well, I, I don't know what my iPhone screen time uh, <laughs> readout would tell you. I'm sure it would say, yeah, I mean, we're all on screens way more than we had to be. <laughs> but I, I would actually say, look, I have doubled down on disciplines to stay away from screens with a rhythm in my life. The rhythms that I had before have become way more important. Um, we're sitting down in the middle of the afternoon here. I just went for a half hour walk, which I have started doing much more intentionally than I ever used to do. So yes, we are all on screens more, but I personally feel like I need to be more aware of all the things I do that get me out of the technology frame and into kind of the created world and into my own createdness. So yes and no, uh, this is definitely the year when we find out how much these things matter Mm -hmm. and how good they can be and how bad they can be. Yes. Yes, for sure. (laughs) For sure. Uh, so Amy, uh, you write this book when you're 19 years old. And one, I, I don't know how to say this. Like, I mean this from love, okay? I mean this from love. So I read your dad's book, and I'm thinking, okay, like, I get this as an adult. Like, as an adult, like, we need to think about this stuff. But, like, let's be honest. Like, no kid really likes what he's saying, <laughs> right? Like, I'm telling my kids this. I'm telling my daughters, like, hey, this is what's going to happen. And when you get a phone, and this is what it's going to look like. But they don't like it. And so as a 19-year-old, you decide to write a book is this book um, because, uh, like, I know your dad's on the phone, but is this kind of like a Stockholm Syndrome thing? If so, just blink <laughs> twice, and I'll know. We can send some help. We can get someone to support you. But how Stockholm-y is this book? <laughs> 
Well, I don't know if you could trust me to answer that, but <laughs> I would say not very. Um, what I will say is what's unusual about my experience growing up in this family is that I was involved in the why. I was involved in all the decisions that we made around technology, the disciplines and the rhythms. Um, those were things where my brother and I actually had input on them and we were really pushed to take ownership of them. So I will say um, very rarely did I see these kinds of rules as, you know, just my parents' restrictions kind of laid down from above. They were always things that we were talking about and in dialogue about when we were younger. And so writing this book almost was kind of a natural outpost of that, was continuing to be thinking and discussing critically what it meant to live with technology, but just for a wider audience than my family. So certainly um, there is nothing in a teenager, um, a, even little teenage me, um, which enjoys restrictions and enjoys following their parents' rules. But I will say that um, I didn't feel like they were just my parents' rules. They were also the kinds of practices and disciplines that uh, it made sense for me to have and to own. So, yes. I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if I would have written this book without my dad <laughs> telling me to do so, but <laughs> I'm really proud of it. And I really believe that it can, that these kinds of disciplines can make a difference, not just for, for me, but also for our whole generation. Yeah. And I think for like, it makes a difference for every human being to have some awareness of, hey, this stuff left to its own devices, uh, no pun intended, will have a hmm. negative effect on our soul and our entire culture. Like, we all need to understand that. Uh, give me kind of like the, the brief overview of what, as a 20-year-old now, your kind of disciplines with technology look like. Yeah. Um, so I would say there are two big things. The first is the like time disciplines and then the space disciplines. Um, so when it comes to time, um, I make sure to set aside time without screens. Um, I wake up without my phone. The first roughly hour of my day, I try to spend without looking at a screen, although, you know, that depends on what I have to do that day. And then the last hour, hour or half hour of my day similarly is screen free as well as our hour of family dinner or when I'm at school you know, any meals with my friends. And then Sunday's Sabbaths are similarly um, not eliminating all devices together, but trying to focus on um, embodied and, you know, three-dimensional uh, enjoyment of the world rather than staring at a screen. So those are the kinds of time yeah. um, uh, disciplines. And then when it comes to space, um, part of how I enforce um, the beginning and ending of the day um, little rule for myself is I keep my phone out of my bedroom. Um, when I'm working, I also keep my phone at least out of sight. Um, if not altogether, you know, outside of the room or the place where I'm working. Um, again, when it comes to spending time with friends, um, in person, I make sure that my phone is away. And even if I'm talking with that person on the phone, on zoom, um, I try to make sure that I'm not being distracted. Maybe I go on a walk while I talk with them so that I'm not tempted to go, you know, find something else to do while we chat. Mm -hmm. um, and just really trying to prioritize um, deep connections with other people, um, real investment with friend in friendships rather than um, the kinds of shallow replacements that I think technology can provide. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's a very accurate description. You, you guys reference uh, share, uh, what is her name? Sure, yes, exactly. But she's talked yeah. about how we've we've chosen to be alone together. 
And so mm-hmm. we will be alone, like we'll stare at our screens, but we can like send a text or we might even be in the same room, but we're all functionally alone, but we're alone together instead of truly being in connection. So yeah, I, I think mm-hmm. the the impulse that you're trying to, and the end game you guys are trying to get us to is so good. Um, 2020 has been a year in which many of us have practices like this that have kind of gone to the wayside because we had this sense of uh, immediacy of things that need to get done or these new disciplines that were kind of... Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of folded into and so maybe this conversation will kind of help be a reset and go okay let's let's reimagine what's going on um (laughs) so i like the the format of the book is so amy you write a chapter functionally and then your dad comes back and and writes a letter to you at the end and uh, i i really love that sort of dialogue you know father daughter obviously because i've you know, three daughters. And so I'm kind of vested in this whole like father, daughter talking about technology thing. And so recently, you know, my oldest daughter got a phone and she started earlier than you guys did. I don't need any judgment from you guys. Uh, so just don't look at me anyway at all. Uh, I feel judged, uh, because by the way, uh, Amy, your dad once was picked up from the airport to speak at a church in West Texas where my good friend is the pastor. And my friend has his five kids in the backseat and they're all staring at screens. And uh, your dad is uh, speaking of the skills that you guys have developed at an early age. And my friend John, he goes, well, wow, how did your kids learn how to do X, Y, and Z? And, and he goes, well, because they're not on screens like your kids. And so that, that is not how I put it. I'm quite sure. He said, your terrible kids are dumb and they're never going to amount to anything. And so what I see in this conversation sure. already is you're that. turning out better than my friend's kids. And so this is proof that the tech wise way of doing life is the right way. <laughs> there are so many things to unpack in what you just said, uh, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm but, say no comment. But, was there a question in there, or do you just want no, an open? I just wanted. To, I just want to make that statement. I want to go back to the question in a second. Um, okay, so here, here's actually the original question I was trying to get to, Amy. So, uh, so my daughter's got a phone, and she has this group text with her friends from she does cheerleading, and so they're setting up a Zoom practice before one of the competitions, and so they're all on their iPhones messaging, "Hey, we're, this is the time we're going to set up Zoom." The problem is one of her friends has a a non-iPhone phone, whatever it is. And so she can't be in the message, in the the text group. And so she's she's left out. And so they have to, you know, loop her in individually outside of the actual. So she's left out because she doesn't have the same technology that everyone else has. And when, when, especially at a young age, you're creating technology barriers in which you're not in spaces where your friends are, in what ways do these social implications pop up? Because if you are li- living a disciplined life and your other friends are living an undisciplined life, there are spaces you're not going to be in and there's going to be some windows in which y- you're not seeing what's going on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I well remember um, the struggle of being the green bubble. I, I Well, okay, non, non-Apple users won't get this, but on an iPhone, messages from another iPhone are a cute little blue color. Mm-hmm. And from a non-iPhone, they're this ugly green. And I too well remember I had a flip phone for a while. And so my texts would always be the green and they wouldn't they wouldn't fit into Apple group chats. And so it is real. Um, it is absolutely true that um, in some way, having these kinds of disciplines around technology, whether you're all in or if it's more your parents, um, they're going to set you apart in some way. And I don't want to discount that. Um, And I certainly experienced that in some ways, but I think what I would say is that, um, is that friendship is 
always in some way about um, being intentional about including people. Cultivating yeah. good friendships is going to be in some way about cultivating relationships with people who care enough about you to overcome some difficulty to, to welcome you in. And so I think what I would say is that in, you know, if you're seeking out good friendships, um, if you're, if you are fortunate to have those good friendships, technology will not be a barrier. And, I think as you kind of allude to, I mean, yes, I'm sure it's tough. And I've been there. I've been there, that girl who, who can't be in the Apple group chats. But I think what's much more important for that girl is not that she get an iPhone so she can be part of that chat. It's that her friends are supporting her such that no matter what the obstacle is, whether it's that she doesn't have the iPhone or, or, iPhone, or if it's something else that, that may make it harder for her connect, to connect, that her friends are there for her and are seeking to bring her in. And so I think ultimately it's always going to be hard to find those friendships as a, as a teenager, but it is so good to seek them out. And it's so good to be that kind of friend to other people. Yeah. Andy, when Amy had experiences probably, or I'm assuming there's many daughters who or sons who've had experiences where the friends weren't the kind of friends that they should have been. And they did make her feel yeah. them left out. As a dad, how how are you, you know, parenting or coaching them to to experience that? Hmm. I mean, I think this is one of the hardest things, yeah. especially about the adolescence stage, is seeing well, seeing your kids get rejected, get disappointed, at the limit, get betrayed, and all those things can happen. Um, get left out. Um I mean, on an, in another another example of this, I mean, I remember when our son was kind of in the late single digits, eight, nine, ten. Um, I think most boys that age these days really they they relate to each other through video games. That is the way they play together. And we didn't have video games in our home, even though we didn't forbid Timothy from playing them at other kids' homes. But he would have friends over and um, would be friends at least, <laughs> wished for friends. And these little boys, I mean, they just were adrift. They were just at a loss. Like they were yeah. so bored. They were so confused about what you do if you don't have a video game to play. My son was not like the, not like the smoothest social creature. Like he didn't know how to manage that. And just seeing it not work. Uh, oh my gosh. It was so painful. Um, so I will say that, um, part of parenting is making room for our kids to have those experiences because that is part of life. And it does reveal who your best friends are and it does kind of unveil what friendship is and where it becomes really damaging, I think is when there's no supportive environment to absorb yeah. the pain of it. And so what we tried to do for our kids was you know, surround them with enough love, enough, not just our own love, but, you know, other families, uh, other adults in their lives as well, that, that, yeah, they had some difficult experiences with friends, but there was a buffer of love that allowed them to feel it and grieve it and be angry about it and all the, you know, very amplified emotions you have when you're, you're a teenager, but still feel loved in it. Um, and I, Amy, I thought what you said was really profound that one way to solve the problem of the green bubble is to get every kid an iPhone. But the other is 
to actually realize our relationships are defined by how we account for one another's vulnerabilities in a way like, Mm -hmm. and, and rather than fixing each other's vulnerabilities, actually finding ways to include one another in our vulnerability, like this is practice for the rest of life because the other people in our lives are not always going to have the blue, the blue bubble of life around Mm -hmm. them. And I've been thinking a lot about where does family really come from? It comes from caring for people who are really inconvenient and who are really <laughs> difficult and, you know, at stages of life that aren't rewarding. And without that, you don't really have love. And I do feel like uh, it's not all bad that we can't solve yeah. all these problems. Does that make sense? You know, I what I really want to add to that, too, is like every single teenage girl, um, as I as I detail kind of in the book. I absolutely had many times of feeling left out of not feeling liked, you know, not always having to do with technology, just like what it is to be a teenager. Um, And when I talked to dad about this, which I did, you know, pretty often, he would always say, in addition to loving me and comforting me, he would also say, can you turn this around and start looking for the other people who feel the way you do? When you are feeling comfortable and happy in a social situation, are you able to turn around and look for the people who feel the way that you've felt, who feel left out and lost? And this has really stuck with me. I, I'm not a perfect friend right now, but I think I am a much less imperfect friend because I have really tried to remember that, to remember the the amount of pain that I myself have felt and try to seek empathy in other people. And so that's not to say that there is some neat correspondence of like, oh, you experience a certain amount of being left out, then you get to go help other people who are left out. That's It's not a neat one-to-one thing, but I do feel like one of the things I'm most grateful for is that I was really encouraged to turn, to take my pain and use it to love other people rather than um, rather than kind of balling it up and just letting it infect my own sense of self. And so I think that if we kind of set up these kinds of supportive structures in our families, even the most challenging times as a kid, as a teenager, as an adult, can be kind of redeemed and used as an opportunity to show grace to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a nice mixture of, uh, taking Henry Nouwen's wounded healer and applying it to technology somehow. Uh, I don't know how that, that copy and paste works, uh, but it's, I think it's spot on. I, I think ultimately our hurts are to te- teach us how we can be uh, a healer for someone else. And I think this also, uh, reinforces the importance of the family structure because many times, a screen has become a proxy for a, a babysitter, supervisor, um, so that uh, you know mm-hmm. your parent can do whatever they want, and the kids therefore are being raised. It's not a latchkey kids as much as it's a uh, you know an, an Apple kid or a screen kid, because in some ways those screens are taking some of the the uh, the onus off parents from having to oversee or to, to engage or to be there for them. So yeah, I, I think it puts some weight mm-hmm. back on families to be more family and and. Uh, some families are doing this out of necessity. And, and this is part of what the 2020 experience is, is that you have yeah. some some parents who are like, uh, yeah. I still have to work. You've got to be home. Uh, what do we do here? And I think technology is you know, a great Band-Aid, but it's definitely not a solution. 
And unfortunately, that's the problem. Uh, So we've talked about some of the weaknesses of when you step away from a very distracted and screen-based world, uh, but there are also a lot of strengths to it. And one of the things that you you talk about in the book, Amy, is... um, is a conversation which you uh, a friend had to you, I think, about a post on social media, and it is just like wrecked me. Where you had a friend make make the comment about, yeah, if you post it, you'll get likes and you'll get validation. Like they literally said, get validation for whatever happened by posting. And I thought, no, we don't say that. We think that we don't say that though. Uh, <laughs> what is wrong with your friend? She's just not supposed to say what we all think. How does that happen? <laughs> it is amazing isn't it that that kids are working this out and they you know kids say what they think to one another at least if not to adults and it is really revealing to read that in the book and realize oh the kids actually are talking this way like well hey if you need validation here's your route you know uh, <laughs> it's really as a parent you're right uh, you're totally right okay so so amy they say <laughs> that to you <laughs> how do you think about that I mean, I, I think I I understand where she was coming from. I mean, I think social media at its best is kind of supposed to do that. You post your nice pictures and you get lots of sweet messages from other people. Doesn't that sound great? And in some ways, that's kind of what Instagram, Facebook, everything promises us um, is some kind of real connection with other people and some love and affection from them. But I think the reason that it really didn't resonate with me and didn't really fix what I was going through um, was how much it it wasn't a problem about other people. Um, What I was struggling with was insecurity about my own self that came from fears about who I was, about how lovable I was, about, you know, all all of these things. And so going to other people to get that kind of very superficial approbation. um, That really wasn't what I was looking for. What I wanted was somebody to just look at me and tell me that I was deeply um, eternally loved. And that's not what social media gives you. You've got this uh, line about uh, when troubles and fears overwhelm, don't turn to technology. Like that is a, just like a, a great like mm-hmm. precept that we should all hold on to. Whenever mm-hmm. you're feeling, whenever whatever extreme emotion, technology is not the answer. Uh, Andy, you you have the response about mm-hmm. feeling uh, heartache that you can't spare your daughter from pain and insecurity. As you hear her write about this, I know you want to solve that. What do you think your job as a parent is, even if it can't be sparing her from from pain and fear and all this stuff? as she navigates a world in technology? Yeah, it's definitely not. I mean, uh, we had a saying when the kids were growing up, I think I wrote about this in TechWise Family. uh, The only thing money can buy is bubble wrap. And sometimes when you are a parent, what you want to buy Mm -hmm. for your kids is bubble wrap. And it's actually not what they need. It's not what any human being really should want. We shouldn't want to go through life insulated from the world and because when you're wrapped in bubble wrap it's not just that you can't feel pain it's also you can't feel anything you you don't feel the world so instead you know we we talked a little bit about first of all just providing that kind of baseline of love which of course we didn't do perfectly for our kids but we sought to do it tried prayed that we could do it enough 
I think another thing is, um, is interpretation of what's going on. Like, uh, that is helping our kids reframe and a very discerning early reader of this book, TechWise Life, where I write these letters to Amy said something actually that was very meaningful to me because I hadn't quite realized what I was doing. He said, in every, almost every one of your letters, you take the experience and the insights that Amy's, um, laid out in her chapter and you point her back to scripture and the way that people in scripture actually lived through this, even in a pre-technological era, like you anchor it for her in our shared story of the Jewish and Christian faith. And, and I was like, Oh, that is what I was trying to do. <laughs> and of course, because we're writing not just for one another, but for readers, I'm trying to do it for readers. I'm trying to do it for parents who will read my letters. But I think with our kids, part of our job is helping them re-narrate what they've experienced. So you know, yes, you it, you know, there's this kind of very basic technique in what's sometimes called healing prayer that that is um, not something to do lightly, but is something to do very, uh, you know, uh, if the spirit leads carefully and prayerfully, which is to go to these painful moments in our lives and ask where where was or where is Jesus yeah. in that experience, even if it's a terribly traumatic experience. And um, one way or another, I think I was often trying to do that for our kids as they grew up, like give them a different way of picturing mm-hmm. what they were experiencing uh, from the, the even the interpretation that their peers would give them, you know, like you just need validation. Well, that's not really what you need here. <laughs> um, and Yeah. So, you know, support and then interpretation, because what we're after here is wisdom and courage. That's what family is for. Wisdom is being able to take what I've experienced in the world and deeply know what it means, know what it tells me about the world, myself, others, and God. And then courage, this is why bubble wrap is really no good. You're not going to become more courageous by being more wrapped in more layers. You're going to become more courageous by going through these things and coming out the other side, having survived and realized, oh, there's a rescuer in my life. There's rescue in my life. And so I can take bigger risks because I can trust there's a bigger rescue on the yeah. other side of it. Yeah, risk. that's good. Uh, as an Enneagram 7, I'm a big fan of bubble wrap uh, and not having to feel anything. Uh, so <laughs> we can, uh, we can you know, reframe that, reframe that and uh, try to give a different opinion on that at, at another point down the road. Uh, but we'll... we'll we got the yeah, pro yeah, bubble wrap I mean, argument. Let's, let's not completely write that uh, out of the equation. Um, and one of the things that does seem to happen is that you get uh, older generations that will look at young people and go, oh, kids these days are always on their phone. The kids are the worst. And one of the things that never happens yes. is the acknowledgement that kids were not the ones who made the phone. It was not the millennials. It was not the next generation. That cre- It was the boomers. Boomers, you made the phones and gave them to kids. It's your responsibility to fix this problem since you started it. Nevertheless, uh, that is the world that you... Inhabit. Oh, it's the world that you. And so you tell a story about uh, a group of uh, teens who were uh, encouraged to spend ten minutes with a psalm, and or as some call it, a palm. Um, and so you, <laughs> little joke there. Um, it's not in two Corinthians either. But uh, nevertheless, uh, they can't do it. Now I'm going to be honest. I've been around some church leaders. I'm not going to say which ones that had similar trouble with uh, some time in solitude. <laughs> And they acted like it was torture. Oh, so yeah. it's not a, like an age thing, I don't think. Um, but y- mm-hmm. you do have uh, the ability to pay attention is diminishing. Like that's like it, it's been studied. It's been, there are studies, and it's happening mm-hmm. less and less all across the board. But especially in generations that grow up, in which screens are just a normal part of it. How, how do we how do we make accessible ways 
for people who have grown up on screens to learn how to step away and experience like the benefit of solitude when that is such a foreign experience mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is that we are aware of this. My generation, we know this is a problem. Um, when we surveyed um, kids 13 to 21 for this book, one of the things we asked about was, in what ways has technology made your life more difficult? And we also asked one about how it's made your life easier. But the number one cluster of responses was about distraction. Um, I believe about 50% said, I can't get as much work done. There were people saying, I feel less focused. Over and over, people, um, my generation, people my age were reporting that technology is making it so much harder to focus. So it's not like we aren't aware of this as a problem. Um, and I think I think the first solution needs to be in community. And I say this probably in every single chapter, maybe on every page of the book, is the solution to our problems is in community. Um, but that's because I believe it's really true. I think these are incredibly challenging forces. Um, like the power that Facebook, Google, Apple, Netflix have over our lives is incredible. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't diminish that and say, oh, it's just a little, you know, Mm. social media page. How can you be so addicted to it? No, this is engineered because Mm. these various Silicon Valley people profit off of our spending as much time on these platforms as possible. Like this, we are up against quite a force of engineering. Um, And so I think that the solution or the steps toward a better way really um, is in accountability with other people. Um, Mm. I've, dad and I have written about how we do this in our family, but I think this is also something to pursue with friends, setting up time of silent prayer. Um, I actually have a now Zoom prayer night um, on Thursdays um, with friends from college where we have just five minutes of silence. And it's just a way for us all to be accountable. Um, We can all see each other on the Zoom. We know that we're not, you know, sneaking a peek at our phones. You know, it's that accountability of keeping silence together and praying together. Um, And I don't know if I would do that on my own. So Mm. I really think that as much as individual disciplines are important, it is a lot easier in some ways to keep those kinds of valuable disciplines when we have somebody else to keep us yeah. accountable. And, uh, go ahead, Andy. You, I, I don't know if you've gotten to talk with Kurt Thompson, Luke, at any point, but um, he's a psychiatrist who writes about this uh, thing called interpersonal neurobiology, which is the way, cool. essentially, <laughs> it's a great phrase, but it's just, it's just the way our bodies and nervous systems specifically are set up to be with other people. We're made Mm. for other people. And he, Kurt actually has, has observed to, uh, to me and, and when he speaks about how hard it is to do this thing, this goes, you know, Pascal, the the French mathematician and philosopher said that all of humanity's troubles come down to this, that we cannot bear to be alone with ourselves for 10 minutes yeah. I think he said, or something like that. You know, that's in the what 18th century. Yeah. Like there's no screens, but hasn't people still have this problem better. way back then. It, it hasn't gotten better. And Kurt says, it's incredibly hard to do kind of meditation on your own. 
but you put a few people in a room together as Amy's been doing with her friends and even does on zoom now. And you say, we're going to do this together. It's actually the presence of those other minds that your mind knows are there help you attend and you can do things basically anything really difficult. You need other people to help you do it. So I think the, the damage that screens have done is they give us such a good simulation of other minds that we get drawn in to this sort of proxy or uh, it's a very close second in a way, the way my device responds to me, the way it it sort of um, notifies me, the way it rewards me. It's very similar to the way another person does enough so that it become, it can actually um, kind of satiate my need for connection with a person. And I end up just kind of experiencing that with a device, but that's not going to help me do the hard thing. (laughs) My, my device can help me do lots of things, but it, can't help me do the hardest, most important things. Only another person can help me do that. So we have to now be much more intentional about putting ourselves in the presence of one another. And, and then we'll find actually you can pay attention when you're deeply in one another's I've got a buddy who was uh, in the army for 25 years. Uh, Many of those years he was a a ranger. And one of the things that he talks about missing the most Mm -hmm. is shared suffering. A group of people who are suffering together. Yeah. And I would say solitude is not suffering. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, less gunfire usually, <laughs> but uh, yes, but very similar. Um, but the shared <laughs> suffering thing. And I mean, to be honest, Amy, like a lot of people when they leave college, there's a sense that they are isolated because they don't have yes. the dorm room or the, the roommates or the same sort of familial experience with their uh, contemporaries. So I, you're spot on. And so the phone has been. A, uh, a cheap substitute in the same way that when you're thirsty and you drink a Coke, yes. uh, it feels like it's satiating your thirst, but it's not really in the same way water does. Um, technology right. has been like this cheap uh, replacement right. for what we all need, which again, goes back to your point uh, about community. And it goes back to uh, your dad's wonderful observation that uh, the uh, the iPod is not an iPod, but a WePod, which, uh, which, I mean, yeah. honestly, Andy, one dad to the other, like, much respect on that. Like, that's, I, I got no problem <laughs> with that joke. And I know your daughter's embarrassed, but uh, I've told a lot worse than that. So, uh, you know, whatever. But you guys are obviously a family of musicians. Amy, are, are you're a musician as well. Mm, um, yeah. At, there's one line in the book, mm-hmm. as someone who's not a musician, but maybe spent more time in the athletic arena, um, where you referred to what's on TV as a sport game. Uh, it kind of indicated that maybe sports are not a centerpiece uh, in the same way that if I describe music, I would maybe use some unwieldy terms. Um, so, yeah, it, it's really on page 73. That, um, yeah, just, okay, just anyway, just FYI. Um, but if when I talk about... Maybe I can... Maybe you can blame like Microsoft Word uh, for that. Oh no, I write for Baker. Never mind. Let's not blame blame Baker. Uh, uh, We'll blame your dad for that one. But um, as as someone who's uh, a musical family, that was obviously uh, music was a centerpiece. Would it be fair to say centerpiece of kind of like your family interactions? Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So when you talk, you guys talk about not having a TV until you were is it middle school? Is that right, Amy? Okay. As someone who like Mm -hmm. sports is very big part of like. My father-in-law is a retired high school football coach in Texas. And so my wife's like, you can watch football all you want. If I tried to have a video game in the house, she would like set it on fire. But I could watch football for six hours on a Saturday. And she'd be like, oh, that's what a man does. Um, 
So like, there's this weird disconnect. Of, like, I, I, I do not know how to do that with sports playing a central role in many of our lives. Do you guys have any ideas on huh. Huh. what that would look like? So you have incorrectly assumed that we didn't watch sports together. Um, I watched the Phillies, the Philadelphia Phillies, not the most renowned baseball team, but you know, I'm very attached to them with my (laughs) grandfather as a kid all the time. So much so was the only thing I ever saw on a screen. And I actually have this very vivid memory as like a fourth or fifth grader. This other girl was like, Amy, what's your favorite uh, TV show? And I did not watch any TV shows, but I was like, okay, sometimes I go to my grandfather's and I watch something on a TV. And so I said to her, my favorite show is the Phillies. And she's like, that's not a TV show. <laughs> so I, we did actually watch watch sports. My, my grandfather especially loved baseball. And um, I mainly remember watching baseball. But that's, with him. A, but that's beautiful not, in itself. Maybe I, but it's like, too far that's back for like, me to remember. I think that's a great yeah. conclusion. Like this is something we do together. And you you yeah. write about how now, like you'll yeah. binge exactly. watch stuff or you watch stuff with with family or friends. That still points back to we're gonna mm-hmm. have a screen on. Like a screen isn't something we're gonna get rid of, but we're gonna emphasize doing this together instead of being isolated by myself. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and you know it is true. I mean. So I actually would say, I think sports and music, even though they, it, it's, it's fair, it's relatively rare to find people or families who are deeply into both for whatever reason, mm-hmm. like we're just wired, built differently. I don't know. I think they're both amazing ways to invest your, your life and your creative creativity and your energy as a human being. Cause they're both heart, soul, mind, strength kinds of activities that require the fullness of yourself to do them. So I get that not all families are going to, make music their primary thing in the way that our family did. Um, and I think sports is another great thing to do as a family and watching sports, I think is good to the extent that it is two things. And I would actually say the same thing with listening to music, mm-hmm. which is the more we do it together and the more it's a shared experience, the healthier and better it is for all of us. And also the more we actually play. Mm-hmm. So I don't care if you go out for varsity football, but you're going to actually enjoy watching football much more if you've at least if you at least go outside and play it in the backyard with your family. And and the real enjoyment of these things and the consumption of the like professional level of these things and this is true for music as well comes when you even just an amateur level. Now in your family you may have people who've done it, you know, at a pretty high level. Uh, it's when you've done it, you've done the very best you could to acquire that ability yourself because then you watch in a different way. So to the extent that's true, I, and we did, we watched a lot of baseball. Baseball was our family thing. And, uh, and maybe even more if, if Amy's brother was uh, on instead of her, he'd have even more memories of this (laughs) uh, because we did this as a father and son a lot was watch baseball. And, and we had, we had glowing rectangles other than a TV, even before we got the TV. So there were ways to sneak the Phillies into the house. And uh, (laughs) I can't think of a better way to spend a few hours with a kid than watching Watching people play at the very height. I mean, watching Jimmy Rollins play shortstop. Yeah, like, yeah. One of the highlights of my life. In our basement where dad is recording, we have two framed scorecards. Yeah, scorecards. From what was it, like a Red Sox game? Game six of the, the, the uh, <laughs> American League Championship Series in 2003. Yeah. Was it Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees? So yeah. we are so, not a sports freak. <laughs> no, no judgment. No judgment. Andy, I had. Uh, um, 
this guy who's a drummer for a band called Jimmy Eat World, and he he says that yeah. in the band there's typically one guy who likes sports, and it's usually the drummer. And like, and he's a drummer, like he's professional, like that's what he does for a living. And he's a big sports guy, and he's a drummer. So like, I don't know what someone smarter than me can figure that out. But uh, yeah, I'm not saying it's either or. But let's be honest, people typically have their preferences. Okay, Amy, uh, you um, you're 20. I don't know what your uh, family life, your relationship life looks like now, or what it's going to look like in the future. But say one day you have a family with kids. What is, uh, do you have one thing that you might do a little different than what your parents did growing up with you? Mm. Yeah, I think, hmm, I, I think what I would, I would want to kind of, oh, this, this sounds so like cold. Um, I won't say schedule, but I, I would want to make discussions about technology um, more central to all of our conversations in the sense of like every day at dinner, I think it could be really helpful to just run down with kids and also like the whole family, like, Hey, what, what happened on social media today? What did you watch today? What did you, what kinds of technology did you use in school today? That kind of thing I've heard of other families doing. And I think that could have been really helpful because, um, you know, really for kids nowadays, everything in our lives is mediated through screens, even, even with the kinds of rhythms and disciplines that we're talking about. And so I think asking about technology at the dinner table needs to be as kind of routine as asking about school at the dinner table or about whatever um, lacrosse practice after school. It is I, I think that building that in even more than our family already did and ma- being very intentional about checking in every day, I think that that's, would be really That's helpful. a good piece of advice. How, how old do you think my daughter should be when she's allowed to get on social? Yeah. Oh, okay. I... I have to admit, I have gotten more and more disapproving of social media the older I got. Um, let's see. I was, um, oh, gosh, I was in I was in ninth grade, and I don't even remember how old that means that I was um, when I first got on Snapchat. And so it was throughout high school I was using social media. And at first, I write about this in the book. At first, I liked it a lot. Then my my interest in it has slowly waned, and Ugh. I'm I'm just going to be honest. I think it is not great for us to be pressured to create these brands of who we are, cutting from wow. our lives the specific moments that we consider will appear mo- appeal most to our peers. I don't know how healthy that is, and I think that we need to acknowledge the danger that is inherent within it. However, there are also really good things about social media. So I guess I would tend to say what makes sense for, I think it makes sense to start getting on social media when you have a significant number of people who you want to keep in touch with, but you don't see in person every day. So for some people, this might, some kids, it might be like after you go to summer camp and you make a whole bunch of friends who live like all over um, the nation or all over the world, or it might just be when you go off to college and suddenly you're not seeing your high school friends. 
I think that is to me the most legitimate use of social media is when you're using Mm. it to connect with people who you just can't um, have those little um, casual interactions with in person. Um, And I tend to say that I would discourage um, using social media as another way to connect with the people that you already see every day. Um, I can totally see the appeal of that, but mine's in my experience, what it works out to is that you're just more stressed about yet another way to, um, try to get them to like you, to try to show yourself as, you know, a cool Mm -hmm. and, and fun person. And so I think that focusing on that positive, the ability of social media to connect long distance, um, and really only entering in on the social media world when that becomes something that's helpful to you. I yeah. think that would be my yeah, that's advice. Good. Uh, Andy, I, I personally am wired in such a way that uh, people not liking me has never been like the end of the world for me. And so when my kids are not happy with me, it, it does. It <laughs> when my kids that. like think I'm the worst, <laughs> it doesn't really bother me. But there are some people who do. And so could you kind of coach them up on? I don't know the musical equivalent of coaching, or like would you? <laughs> conduct them. I don't know. I'm trying to speak your language, but uh, would you choir direct them so that they could understand uh, or they can, how to process. This is an asking for a friend situation. I, like I, I don't have, no, I'm specifically because I, I, like my kids are not happy that they don't get to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, I don't care. Like it's not my job to make you yeah. happy, but I know not everyone has the disposition that I do. And so you've obviously been yeah, comfortable yeah. with that conversation, I can imagine. So how, how should they uh, process huh. that? <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, you have, uh, if, if you are plagued, let's say, or just troubled or afflicted with the need for others' approval, and, and even, uh, yeah, I think approval is the key thing. Uh, we're meant for relationship, of course, but we're not necessarily meant for constant affirmation. Um, you need, you need a, a practice of self-talk that, that narrates to yourself the truth about who you are that's independent of those other people. So I have it written on my wall right next to me. A friend put this in calligraphy years and years ago, and this is something that I will say in any situation where I'm tempted to feel insecure, uh, I learned it from someone else, uh, a teacher of the spiritual life named Leanne Payne taught this to me. I say three sentences over and over. I've said for, I'm, I've probably done this for 30 years now um, in my head, as it were. There is another who lives in me. There is another who completes me. There is another whose righteousness is mine. And it, when I step into... Uh, difficult situations, situations where I feel, where I could feel insecurity, where I could feel the need for people's approval. I literally will say these three sentences over and over in the moments before it. There is another who lives in me. There is another who completes me. There is another whose righteousness is mine. And we practice the presence of that other who loves us unconditionally. And then that it, it has, I mean, it doesn't work. It's not like a magic formula. It doesn't, it doesn't turn the spigot off or the, the, the faucet off of needing approval. But over time, it reshapes your life, and and you you have a different kind of need for other people once you've learned to practice the presence wow. of God. I don't know. That's 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 really the only thing that's worked. That's for really me. good, <laughs> even if it's not disappointing your kids because they can't use their phone, or if you're disappointing your friends because you're not as available <laughs> on the screen as they would like. Uh, like that's just good stuff right there. Um, 
So thank you. The, uh, the, the book, yeah. My TechWise yeah. Life. Uh, Amy, congratulations. This obviously is your first book. And to write it with your dad, like that's pretty great. Yes. And uh, I will say this. I'll say two things. One, I told you this before. When I was reading this, I never felt like, oh, this is a 19-year-old writing. Like this is well-written. So congratulations on that. Uh, obviously, uh, Andy, obviously oh, wow. your kid's turning out better than Jonathan Stormont's. So your thing's working. Um, two, I will say this, uh, Amy, as I'm talking to my daughters about screens, this will be a resource that I use. So I will, as a dad, say thank you for helping me navigate some of these conversations with the gift that you, both of you, have given uh, to the world. So thank you, and well done. Congratulations. You guys did a great thank job. You never so once looked at your phone during so this conversation, great. never checked your email, so <laughs> great work. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.